Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 72 is Proverbs 8 about Jesus, Part 2, The Apostolic Fathers. In episode 71, we heard Proverbs 8, in which the Lady Wisdom speaks to us and tells us how great she is and how she was with God in the beginning. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. She cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, you who lack it. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. It's a beautiful passage, and it seems to obviously be a case of personification, of treating something that's not a person as if it were, and giving it a voice, making a character out of it. And the thing that's being personified is wisdom. God's wisdom, which can also be our wisdom. But as I mentioned... The view eventually took over mainstream Christianity that obviously this is the pre-incarnate Jesus, that this is Jesus who is speaking in this passage, or at least this is the obvious new application of the passage in light of the rest of divine revelation. In the rest of that episode, we looked at the New Testament and we found that arguably the New Testament writers don't interpret Proverbs 8 that way. The one passage you can argue about is John chapter 1, the famous prologue, which speaks of the Word, the Logos, that was with God in the beginning. But the issue is, how does he understand it? There's a lot more that needs to be said about John 1. But in this episode, we're going to press on and try to discover just when this interpretation of Proverbs 8 as being the pre-human Jesus took hold in mainstream Christianity. That and an extended response to some feedback on the last episode from Mr. Eliseo Rodriguez on this episode of the Trinity's Podcast. Before we start, I'd like to thank Anthony for his recurring monthly donation and Paul for his one-time donation. Gentlemen, thank you. It's much appreciated. And it's really encouraging to me that people want to support this podcast and blog. Thank you. If you'd like to make a one-time or recurring donation to the Trinity's podcast and blog, just look for the orange donate buttons, which are on the right-hand side of any blog post at trinities.org. Before we move on, let me first say that there's a lot more that can be said about the motif of wisdom in the New Testament, what you might call wisdom Christology, where language that comes from the wisdom literature is applied to Jesus. There's more to it than I mentioned in my episode, 
And you should definitely check out an excellent 2012 presentation by Dr. Dustin Smith of Atlanta Bible College. It's called Jesus and Lady Sophia. You can search that on YouTube, and also I provided the link for that at the blog post for this episode on trinities.org. Here's a little teaser to get you interested. Wisdom is a personified figure throughout Jewish literature, especially literature in the Second Temple period. And it seems that the New Testament writers have taken this understanding that wisdom is, uh, is a personification of God and His attributes, and they began to speak about Jesus in terms of this wisdom. And so I tried to trace it, and I think that, uh, at least the argument that I'm going to make, is that if we better understand how wisdom was used in Jewish literature, we could better understand some of the difficult passages, like John 1 or Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Hebrews 1, 3. I'm going to make the argument that they're drawing from this wealth of literature. So check that out when you have a chance. In this episode, we're going to look at how Proverbs 8 was or wasn't interpreted by the earliest Christian writers that we still have after the New Testament. These are the so-called apostolic fathers. And we're talking about mainstream Christian writers here from the last parts of the first century and the first half or a little bit less of the second century. But before we get to that, I wanted to respond to a response to episode 71 by Mr. Eliseo Rodriguez who defends what he calls Arianism, or Jewish Arianism. Again, I've given the link on the blog post. He makes some good points, which I'll mention, but he also makes some pretty serious errors. I don't want to call out these errors to embarrass him, but only because I think that they're very common errors and other people make them. One error that I find a lot of people make who are not scholars is what I call telescoping Christian history. Imagine that you're looking through a really powerful telescope and you see one thing in front of another thing. I don't know, suppose you see a man and then behind him is a tree. And the way the telescope works, from your faraway perspective, it kind of looks like the man is standing right in front of the tree. And then if you walk up to him, you find out that the man is maybe, you know, a mile away from the tree or 500 meters away from the tree. So there is a telescoping effect. It flattened things out. From that distance, things which were far apart looked like they were near together in space. Now, there's something like this when you look back in time. So you might think about someone like the great Christian scholar Origen, who's working in the first half of the 200s, and maybe he's written something in the year 250, and you say to yourself, wow, 250, that's really close to the time of Jesus. Well, it's many generations from the time of Jesus. He's as close in time to the apostles as you are to the time of Abraham Lincoln. Now think about it. How much do you know about Abraham Lincoln? Probably not all that much. There could be a scholar a thousand years from now who could have a much more accurate view of Abraham Lincoln than you do. Or consider a person living in the year 1900 
Maybe he just has very minimal facts about Abraham Lincoln. Maybe he has certain common misunderstandings about Lincoln. A person now or a person a thousand years from now might have a much more accurate view of Abraham Lincoln than a person living in the year 1900. So close is like same generation and the generation after when you can still talk to eyewitnesses and so on. Once you get beyond that, a person can really be very misinformed about what was going on a hundred years or a couple hundred years before him. So if you cite the church historian Eusebius or Origen, these are great scholars and they're invaluable sources of knowledge, but you also have to keep in mind how the tradition may have drifted up to that point. Let me say a little more about this terminological dispute. This might seem like a fussy and useless thing, a silly ivory tower scholar disputing about words. It's really not. Mr. Rodriguez calls his position Arian, and I said I don't know why anybody would want that name, and I would classify his theology as a type of subordinationist Unitarianism. In his reply, he sort of takes offense. He says that, uh, you know, I just want to call things Unitarian because that makes Unitarian seem better. I want my view to be on top, so I want things to have the same name as my view. Nope, that's just not what's going on here. The reason that I apply the name Unitarian to people like Origen or Tertullian is because I'm using the term descriptively. I'm trying to classify positions. I want there to be a place in the scheme for every position and only one place. A place for everything and everything in its place. That's how you classify so when talking about Trinitarian views, I sort them into one-self views, three-self views, and Mysterian views. If you look at my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, when I look at Christian theologies generally, I sort them into Trinitarian and Unitarian. Trinitarian theologies are ones where the one God is tripersonal in some sense. And Unitarian Christian theology is one on which the one true God, the one God, the God of Israel, is one person, namely the Father. So I'm using the term Unitarian descriptively. It's not what Origen would have called himself or Tertullian would have called himself. It's a term from a later time, but I'm using it in the way that, for instance, Christian apologists use it when they call Jewish or Islamic theology Unitarian. All they mean is that the one God is a great self. He's not in any sense three selves, as in Trinity theories. So that's why I use the term Unitarian. Now, what's my objection to Arian? Well, you've heard of Rush Limbaugh, the famous AM talk radio host, famous right-wing guy. And he's very funny, and he likes to mock his political opponents and give them names. And one of the names that he came up with a long time ago in the 90s was he calls radical feminist theorists and other politicians... He calls them feminazis. 
and he's calling them fanatics and kind of like fascists. Now, if you're doing serious work and you're trying to classify different kinds of feminists, you are not going to use this, you know, deliberate insult, this polemical term feminazi. You're not going to say, well, here, out of all the feminists, you've got the feminazis, the feminist commies, or I don't know what the other categories would be. Really, I don't know how you would characterize different kinds of feminists today. I've seen different people offer some different classifications, but I don't know which are really well-founded. Anyway, the term feminazi is just not suitable for scholarly classifications. It's a polemical term. It's an insult. So is the term Aryan. The term Aryan is not descriptive. The people that are called Aryans in Catholic mainstream Christianity in the mid-300s they weren't really disciples of Arius, most of them. Uh, he wasn't their rallying point. He wasn't the founder of their movement. This type of theology had deep roots, particularly in Origen and some other uh, second and third century Catholic authors. Why were they called Arians then by history? They were called Arians because in the year 325 at the Council of Nicaea, this presbyter Arius was officially condemned. He lost that political battle and he was exiled. Now, of course, later he was unexiled and vindicated by other councils and then condemned again. But anyway, in the heat of the battle, Athanasius, who was a real slasher, a real street fighter in this whole long dispute, he decided to paste the label Arian on his opponents who did not like the statement from the Council of Nicaea with its new language that father and son are homoousios. So Arian is a label like feminazi. It's not descriptive. The whole point of it was to tar this whole various different groups of theologians with the name of a condemned man. That was the whole point of it. It was an insult pretending to be a classification. So that's why I think the term just needs to die. When I'm talking about 4th century Catholic theologians, I never use the term Arian unless I put it in quotes, the so-called Arians. Because again, Arian doesn't correctly describe their motivations or their tradition in theology. And really, there's different theories there, and lumping them all together under that term is really not very helpful. Now, I understand that in later times, particularly in the 18th century, there were some Christians who I would call Unitarians who sort of uh, reappropriated the label Arian. They didn't take it as a bad term or as being by definition heretical, which is the way it's traditionally used. They tried to use it, hey, we, do, we like this term. We are Arians and our theology is better. Yeah, but I just, I think it's better to go with a descriptive label rather than a polemical label that's misleading. Because again, this theology isn't really based on the theology of Arius. So why are we calling them Arians? This is also why I don't call other Unitarians Socinians. There were Socinians in the world. They were followers of this interesting man, Socinus. And he had his own tradition of interpreting the New Testament. There were some idiosyncratic elements to that. There have been Socinians in the world, but most Unitarians who think that Jesus was a man who did not have a divine nature and did not exist before his miraculous conception, most of those Unitarians differ significantly from historical Socinians. 
And again, most of them did not come to their views by reading Socinus, by becoming disciples of Socinus. Socinus is not much read anymore. So, I mean, you can call your theology what you want, but as a scholar, I want to use terms that don't promulgate confusions. And I think that the term Arian does. few other points, Mr. Rodriguez makes some mistakes. He says that if you say that the word in John 1 is an attribute like the wisdom of God, then that's dividing God into two parts. No, most philosophers and theologians don't think of attributes of a thing as parts of a thing. So, for instance, if you are wise and you are also kind, your wisdom isn't one part of you and your kindness another part of you. Those are just two ways that you are. And so even a partless thing could have different attributes. Attributes can be thought of aspects or modes of a thing. He also thinks it's just blindingly obvious that if the word does anything like create, then the word must be a self, must be a personal agent. The grammar of John 1 is consistent with that interpretation. But you should consider that we do talk about people's attributes as doing something. Maybe you describe a comedian, you say, his sense of humor really knocked him dead, or his sense of humor made everybody laugh. That can be true, but you know what your sense of humor does is just what you do. It's a way of talking about what the agent himself does. Or consider this famous scene from a movie. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Is Princess Leia here asking for help? In a sense, she is, but not directly. She set in motion uh, some machinery to cause there to be a hologram of her. We count that as her action, right? But really, it's just a causal effect of something that she did. Really, it's just the hologram that's saying, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. We sometimes talk about the attribute of something as performing an action. Sometimes we also talk about the manifestation of something as performing an action. And then we attribute that indirectly to the agent. So this brings us to the Memra in the Targum. So the Targum are kind of uh, Aramaic paraphrases and commentaries on the Hebrew Old Testament that are produced during a little before the early common era. And it got to be a habit that Jews would, instead of saying that God did something, they would talk about God's word, God's memory, doing it instead. Now, the Old Testament itself doesn't talk this way, so why was there a change? I think there's an influence here from Greek philosophy. The Platonic school of ancient Greek philosophy taught that God is transcendent. He's outside of time and space, incapable of any kind of change, 
And he's such that he can't be sullied by direct interaction with the material world. So consequently, whatever God does has to be done instead by some kind of intermediary, some kind of uh, projection or attribute or exercise of divine power, or maybe it's an intermediate agent. So this is something we need to talk more about, this idea that God can't interact directly with the world, and so therefore any interaction God has with the world has to be done by some kind of intermediary, whether it's an additional agent or whether it's something like a manifestation of God's power. Now in his long response, Mr. Rodriguez wants to show that mainstream Christianity has always believed in the pre-existence of Jesus and that Jesus created the world, or that God created the world through Jesus. And so then he goes looking through the pre-Nicene church fathers to find somebody who's teaching this. And his later examples, I agree, they do interpret Proverbs 8 this way. People like Origen and Eusebius and Tertullian. But of course, these guys are much later. Origen is born in the second century, but most of his work is in the first half of the third century. So he died around the middle of the 200s. Tertullian is also mostly active in the 200s. So he too is third century. The famous Eusebius, the church historian, is writing in the fourth century, around the time of Constantine. Origen is very Platonized, really shockingly so in many ways. Tertullian is not, I would say, a Platonist, but is influenced by particularly Stoic philosophy and to some extent by Platonism. Pushing back in time, he mentions Justin Martyr, who's probably writing around the middle of the 100s, so middle of the second century, and Justin Martyr is a much more interesting case, and I'm going to go into him in some depth in the next episode of the Trinity's podcast. Again, Justin is very Platonist. He was literally a follower of Platonic philosophy before he became a Christian. And there are some surprisingly Platonic ideas in his theology, as we'll see. So if we want to argue that it's obvious that Jesus is in Proverbs chapter 8, that that's how Proverbs chapter 8 has always been interpreted, we would like to find somebody before Justin Martyr. To find this earlier evidence, he appeals to the letters of Ignatius. And he makes some really serious errors, I'm afraid. I'll explain what the deal is with Ignatius when we return. Ignatius is, we think, an early bishop. We don't really know much about him, except that there are some letters that purport to be from him. He's believed to have been martyred sometime between the year 98 and the year 117. So people have for a very long time been very interested in Ignatius because he's only, you know, one or two generations after the apostles. This is somebody who easily could have met the apostle John, for instance. The problem is that it has long been very controversial which, if any, letters attributed to Ignatius are really by him. A whole bunch of them have come down to us in manuscripts. I would say that the conservative mainstream position, a position that many Protestant and Catholic scholars would go for nowadays, 
For instance, if you look in the edition called the Apostolic Fathers, edited by Michael Holmes, you'll see this position in the introduction to the letters of Ignatius. The mainstream conservative position is that exactly seven of these letters are genuine. The problem is, even those seven letters come in three versions. There's a long one, a medium one, and a short one. The mainstream position is that seven of the letters in the medium length are genuine, or at least mostly so, maybe with some later corruptions. There is some scholarly consensus that the short version of the letters is just kind of an abridgment, a paraphrase that's been shortened down by somebody later on of the middle-length letters. Okay, so if you want to know what the original letters said, the short ones are just leaving too much out because they seem to be an abridgment of the middle-length letters. What about the much longer version? Scholars are pretty much universally agreed, and I agree as well, that the long version of the letters of Ignatius are from the 4th century. That is, somebody in the 4th century who became known to history as one of the, quote, Arians, a person with that type of theology, took the middle-length letters and stuffed them full of a bunch of other stuff to push it in a, quote, Arian direction. Scholars across the board now agree that this is how we got the long version of the letters. It's just the medium-length ones larded up with a bunch of extra stuff, which is clearly from the 4th century. You would hope, then, that the middle-length letters would be the genuine ones. Well, I wish it was that simple. When I read the middle-length letters, and some scholars agree, but there's not really a consensus about this, when I read the middle-length letters, I see some things that sound like they're from the early 2nd century, which is when these are supposed to be from, but I also read things that sound like later monarchian theology. I see terminology and issues that really arose particularly in the early 200s. So I think that even the middle-length letters have been heavily corrupted. I guess I think that there probably are some genuine parts there, but there's no way to really separate things out. Right, so we're talking about a difference here of perhaps a hundred years. Difference between something written around the year 100 and something written around the year 200, or maybe somewhat later than that. It's not that hard to discern these later elements. Imagine that you're reading something that's supposed to be a letter from a soldier who served in World War I, right, 1914 to 1918. In the middle of this letter, he mentions cybercrime. Well, hold on a second, Buster. Cybercrime? That term was invented in the 1990s. That just can't be right. If this is a genuine letter and not a complete forgery, then somebody has added in this part that mentions cybercrime in a letter from 1918. So it's harder when you get farther on in history than we are from 1918 and from the 90s, but still it can be done. And there are some scholars, a minority, who think that these letters were just wholly forged later on. I think there's probably a genuine core there. Okay, so this is the huge headache that's been caused by this, frankly, evil Christian habit of forging letters to try to support their theological position, which was just rampant in the ancient world. Now, here are some problems with Mr. Rodriguez's responses. He quotes the letter from Ignatius to the Trallians, chapter 9. And this is on page 70 of the old Antonicene Fathers edition. 
talking about Jesus, it says, He truly assumed a body, for the Word was made flesh and lived upon earth without sin. Now, does this reflect belief in a pre-existent Jesus? Yes, it does. Here's the problem. Mr. Rodriguez is reading this from the long version of that letter. He's supporting his position by saying that Ignatius, this guy who died in the early 100s, held this position. And what he quotes is what all scholars agree is a heavily corrupted version of his letter that was corrupted in the 300s. And if you look at the middle version of that letter, instead of saying he truly assumed a body, it says that Jesus, quote, was truly born, end quote. So his whole point depends on appealing to the 4th century corrupted version. And it gets worse. Mr. Rodriguez claims to find another smoking gun in Ignatius, that is, another passage in which Proverbs 8 is interpreted as being about Jesus. This is Ignatius's letter to the Tarsians, chapters 5 and 6. This is on page 108 in volume 1 of the old Antonicene Fathers collection. And his point is that in chapter 6, Proverbs 8 is quoted, and it's said that this is God the Word in his pre-human state. But Mr. Rodriguez seems to not have noticed that the editors of this old volume classify this letter as spurious, in other words, fake. So there's agreement among, I think, all scholars that the letter of Ignatius to the Tarsians is just purely a forgery. And the editors of this edition say that it alludes to the Sabellian heresy, which did not arise till after the middle of the 3rd century. Okay, so it's a phony it's referring to something that happened in the mid-200s, and yet it's supposed to be by a guy who died around 100. No, that's no good. Sorry. It's like my cybercrime example. And this is why this letter does not appear in the collection edited by Michael Holmes called The Apostolic Fathers, which is published more recently. So the lesson here, friends, is that we need scholarship. This knowledge has been hard won. Scholars have spent thousands of hours examining manuscripts, translating them, comparing them, trying to piece them together into an understanding of Christian history. We can't just go trolling for ancient sources that support the kind of theology that we're interested in. We need to read the footnotes, we need to read the introductions that scholars give us to these books, so that we can know when we're dealing with fakes, or with genuine but heavily corrupted sources that we have to be very careful with. So let's stick to sources that are plausibly from the second century. What about the seven letters of Ignatius? Well, in those seven letters, if they're genuine, and again, I, I guess I think that at least some of them are genuine, although I also think they've been corrupted at least once, probably in the late 100s or sometime in the 200s. In those seven letters, there is no reference to Proverbs chapter 8. Really, I think we have to be skeptical about those letters. They seem to pointedly call Jesus God and our God. 
Again, that's a later habit that just wasn't done around the turn of the second century. You do see it, of course, all over the third century and beyond. I don't see anything really relevant in those letters to our inquiry. When we come back, some early and uncorrupted sources. Here's a more interesting source. This is the letter called First Clement, which scholars date to perhaps around the year 95. And really, First Clement sounds very much like the New Testament in most ways. The Creator there and the one God there is the Father. Jesus is repeatedly called his servant and is described as our high priest. The book of First Clement never says that Jesus is divine, never says that he has divine nature and human nature. And it never says that he existed before his conception. None of these Christological claims are either explicitly said or implied or suggested or even presupposed by anything that's in that book. Also, interestingly, in chapter 10 of 1 Clement, it's the one God himself who speaks to Abraham. It's not supposed to be the pre-human Jesus or the Word. Also, I find interesting some places where the author could have easily referred to the pre-human Jesus if he had believed in him. These are places where he could have called Jesus God's word, understood to be an agent who already existed with God, and in some way helped him at the creation of the cosmos, but he's silent. He doesn't go into those themes at all. Here's the first one. Nothing is impossible with God except to lie. Therefore, let faith in him be rekindled within us, and let us understand that all things are near to him. By his majestic word he established the universe, and by a word he can destroy it. By God's word he created. Right, just like the Old Testament. And I think that's actually what's meant in John 1. But there's no riffing here on the word as the pre-human Jesus, and there's no reference to John 1. Another place where you'd expect to see some mention of the pre-human Jesus would be when he's commenting on the famous creation passage in Genesis 1. Above all, as the most excellent and by far the greatest work of his intelligence, with his holy and faultless hands, he formed humankind as a representation of his own image. For thus spoke God, let us make humankind in our image and likeness. And God created humankind. Male and female he created them. So, having finished all these things, he praised them and blessed them and said, Increase and multiply. We have seen that all the righteous have been adorned with good works. Indeed, the Lord himself, having adorned himself with good works, rejoiced. So, since we have this pattern, let us unhesitatingly conform ourselves to his will. Let us, with all our strength, do the work of righteousness. 
So he just walks right past the let us make and does not say that he must have been talking to Jesus. Again, in this book, it's just God that is the Father himself who's the creator. In fact, that was always the emphasis in Christian literature until a certain point in Christian history. And again, this author understands personification. In chapter 57, he quotes at length wisdom speaking in Proverbs 1. But he doesn't claim that this is the pre-human Jesus. Proverbs 8, he mentions nowhere. I think you can summarize his view of God and Jesus by the prayer he gives at the end of chapter 59. Let all the nations know that you are the only God, that Jesus Christ is your servant, and that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. He's addressing there the one he earlier calls Master. He's talking to the Father. And so, like John 17, this is saying that the Father is the only God, whereas Jesus is the servant of that God. How about the book that's called Second Clement? This is not a letter like First Clement, but it seems to be a sermon that somehow became associated with the name of Clement. Scholars think that it's maybe from the middle of the second century, so maybe around 150. Again, it's God, the Father, who is described repeatedly as the creator in this book. Does the book say anything about Proverbs chapter 8? No. Does the book assert or assume that Jesus existed before his human life? Does this book teach that Jesus existed before he was a human? Maybe. In chapter 1, it's praising Jesus for all that Jesus has done. And it says in one eight, For he called us when we did not exist, and out of nothing he willed us into being. And that could reflect an assumption that Jesus was the direct agent of creation, But on the other hand, it's talking about Jesus' atonement of his salvation. So it could be the Pauline theme of new creation, Jesus as remaking us. But that's not the end of it. In chapter 9, verse 5, he says, If Christ, the Lord who saved us, became flesh, even though he was originally spirit, and in that state called us, so also we will receive our reward in this flesh. So it sounds like, At one time, Christ was spirit, and later, he became flesh. And so that suggests that he exists before his human state. But then you look at chapter 14, and he's talking about the church and says, Now I do not suppose that you are ignorant of the fact that the living church is the body of Christ. For the scripture says, God created humankind, male and female. The male is Christ, the female is the church. Moreover, the books and the apostles declare that the church not only exists now, but has been in existence from the beginning, for she was spiritual, as was also our Jesus, but was revealed in the last days in order that she might save us. So the church always existed, but was spiritual. Surely the author here doesn't take that literally. He must mean a kind of pre-existence in the mind of the Father, in the eternal plan of God. This is what we discussed in episodes 61 and 62 of the Trinity's podcast, which I recommend to you. 
So if Christ originally was spiritual, but that just meant that he existed in God's mind and plan until the time was where he took on actual existence and not just mental pre-existence, then it's just not so clear here. So does this book believe in the pre-existence of Jesus or Jesus as creator? Maybe. It's hard to say. I'm inclined to think not, but I could be persuaded otherwise. On then to another source, this one's called the Didache, and this was only discovered in the 1800s. It had been long lost, and it's probably from the late 1st century or the first half of the 2nd century. The scholar Bart Ehrman says it's maybe between 100 and 120, although was probably based on earlier materials. It's a very interesting early Christian peace, which reflects a strong Jewish influence throughout. And the one God in the Didache is addressed as Holy Father, as Almighty Master, and as Our Father. And it's that one God, the Father, who is said to be the Creator. And Jesus is repeatedly called His Servant. There is no claim of Jesus' pre-human existence in the Didache, there's no use of a reference to Proverbs chapter 8, and there's no claim that Jesus was in any way involved in the Genesis creation. Seemingly, they didn't believe those things. Is it obvious that the Gospel of John and the letters of Paul teach that Jesus pre-existed and created the cosmos? Well, if so, then they didn't have those letters or they didn't agree with them. Of course, it's also possible that they did know about the Gospel of John and the letters of Paul, and they just didn't interpret them that way. Moving on, another source is a letter by Polycarp to the Philippians. And this is the only genuine piece we have from Polycarp. He was an early Christian leader who was martyred for his faith sometime between 155 and 160. And Polycarp's letter to the Philippians really sounds like the New Testament. Like every letter that's attributed to Paul in the New Testament, he starts off with a greeting from the two of them, from God and also from Jesus. His letter starts, quote, Polycarp and the presbyters with him to the church of God that sojourns at Philippi, may mercy and peace from God Almighty and Jesus Christ our Savior be yours in abundance, End quote. The one God is the Father, the Lord Jesus is the Son. He was crucified for our sins, raised and exalted, and now serves as our permanent high priest. In the letter, he denounces false teachers who deny, quote, that Jesus has come in the flesh, end quote. That's in chapter 7, but, but that just means, as it does in the New Testament, that Jesus was a real man, a human being. And also like the New Testament, Jesus here is someone whom we are to imitate, like Jesus, we are to have, he says, patient endurance. And like him, we should be, quote, firm and immovable in faith, end quote.
You see basically similar theology and Christology in the anonymous book called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, which describes his death at the hands of the Romans. So far, we've seen authors who seemingly don't believe in the pre-existence of Jesus because they don't bother to mention it, and seemingly they attribute creation, like the Old Testament does, to God, the one true God, the one who's called the Father in the New Testament. And so far, we haven't seen anyone who clearly thinks that Proverbs 8 is about Jesus. But things start to change in the middle of the 100s. There's the so-called letter of Barnabas, And we don't really know how to date it precisely. Scholars think it's not by the Barnabas, that's Paul's companion in the New Testament. Perhaps it's no later than the year 135, so it's still pretty early. And twice in this letter it says that it was the Lord, that is the pre-human Jesus, to whom God spoke in Genesis 1 when he said, Let us make humankind according to our image and likeness. This is in chapters 5 and 6. So when this author says that the Son, quote, came in the flesh, end quote, or was revealed in the flesh, he does think of this as a transition from a pre-human state to a human, that is, a fleshly state. So in Barnabas, you have Jesus present at creation. And he doesn't say this explicitly, but probably he would interpret John 1 and Proverbs 8 as being about Jesus and his role in creation. The final source I'll look at is called The Shepherd of Hermas. This is a really interesting, and I'll be honest, I think it's a really annoying book. It purports to be a series of visions, but it really reads like tedious, moralizing fiction. It was popular in the ancient world by people who shared the same type of moralistic outlook, which is really very different than what you see in the New Testament. In any case, it's probably from the first half of the second century, so you know, roughly between 100 and 150. It's attributed to a guy named Hermas, who was the brother of Pius, who was Bishop of Rome and died in 154. The shepherd of Hermas isn't that interested in Jesus. It goes on for quite a long time before even mentioning him. In this book, it's God the Father who's described as a creator repeatedly. However, in chapter 89, it says that the Son is far older than the creation, as the Son was, quote, the Father's counselor in his creation, end quote. I take it that this is a gesture to Genesis 1 and or Proverbs chapter 8. I would guess that it's a gesture at Genesis 1, but it could be either one. So maybe here there is a reference to Proverbs chapter 8 being the pre-human Jesus. So we've got up to about the year 150. We've seen that the earlier 2nd century sources seem really uninterested in Jesus' pre-human career. And like the Old Testament, they just attribute all of the creation to God alone. You don't see any claim here that it was Jesus who walked in the garden or appeared to Moses or Abraham or the other patriarchs. Then around the era of 130 to 150, things start to change. The question is why? Because they had the letters of Paul all along, we presume. 
And they had the Gospel of John since at least the 90s. Some scholars think maybe John was written in the 80s. So what changed? Why did they become interested in saying that Jesus had a career before his human life and that Jesus was with God in the beginning? Indeed, that God made all things through him. The important person here, I think, is the famous Justin Martyr. And we'll look at what he says about these things in the next episode of the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.